0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Talk about our favorite topic, home labs, but this time with topics like AI in mind. Welcome to the show, William. Could you briefly introduce yourself? But since probably most of our listeners might already know you, could you maybe also share something that most of our listeners don't know about you yet?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Always love chatting tech and home labs with you guys. Uh, my name is William Lam. I'm a senior staff solutions architect at VMware. It's uh, oh man, I actually just hit my uh, 12 year anniversary. Time flies. Um, In terms of something folks may not know, uh, you know, maybe most of your listeners may know that I used to go um, riding, uh, doing cycling a lot with my road bike. Uh, But since I've had kids, you know, I've taken a break on that. And now my hobby is actually uh, running some Spartan races. Uh, And that's been uh, keeping me pretty busy uh, when I'm not uh, working on tech or home labs.
0: So in terms of Spartan races, is it like do you uh, do a, a specific uh, length, like a specific distance or um, what, what, like, what kind of races are you, are you doing?
1: Oh yeah, it's a sort of endurance racing. Um, there are three difficulties. Uh, there's like a 5k, a 10k, and a 15k. Um, and there are cor- there are obstacles throughout them, so anywhere from like 10 to 15 up to 20, 25. And what's really interesting about these races that and they're actually all over the world uh, by the way, so you can definitely check them out. Um, is there different locations there's even a Spartan race within Greece itself. And so depending on the location, the temperature, the time of the year, you'll have different factors that, that kind of factors into these races. So it's, it's always different. Uh, so even if you've done one in one location, you might go to, um, a different state, different country, different city, and you'll have a completely different experience altogether.
0: Wow. And are there any specific races somewhere in the world that are still on your bucket list or like you have planned?
1: Uh, I would love to travel the world and do Spartan races. I'm pretty sure my wife won't let me or kill me for that matter. <laughs> uh, but I, I have done a race in Hawaii and apparently this is on some folks' bucket list. I mean, I wouldn't mind going there just for typical vacation, but uh, to be able to run a race on Honolulu, it's actually part of the courses where they uh, filmed the movie Jurassic Park. Um, so if you remember the big grass scene where the helicopter flies through, I actually got to run through that. Now, it, it as great as that sound, uh, it was actually one of the toughest races I've ever done. I was actually out there for almost eight and a half hours. Wow. Um, so the the humidity, the uh, elevation definitely takes a toll on you. So it, um, it's not for the faint hearted. And that was, you know, the the 13K or the, or the sorry, the 15K um, 30 plus Obstacle, so definitely one that's gonna definitely kick your butt. But uh, if you can kind of get through these races, uh, they definitely are fun, especially if you do with like friends and family.
0: Awesome, sounds like a really awesome plan to do with it. Maybe like uh, if a uh, VMR explore is there next year, we could do someone. Uh, we could do one in Spain or in or in Vegas. Now, coming back to the VMR topic, like uh, you already uh, spilled beans a little bit. We're going to talk about home labs and. It is the holiday season, so last year you pulled out some music. I decided to do the same right now, and wish everyone a merry Christmas. And enough about that. Let's talk about home labs. So you've been at Explore uh, both in uh, in Vegas as well as in Barcelona, talking about home labs, talking about the state of the union, uh, and we know that a lot has happened in the last twelve months when it come with yeah comes to the topic of of home labs. Um, so we're going to talk about that, uh, but before we dive into the topic, I'd like to ask you a couple of personal questions around those home labs. So when did you start with your first home lab and what did it look like?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've always kind of had a home lab, you know, through the different years of, of, of sort of, you know, back when I was a customer of VMware and even before that, you know, predating myself sort of back in college. Um, and in the early days, you know, my, my friend uh, Twan and I would have sort of sort of your typical build your own server. Um, we were somewhat fortunate um, that power and cooling wasn't necessarily something we had to really worry about because we were at the university. <laughs> um, so, so we got a little bit of leeway there. And so this was a, you know, traditional 1U, 2U, super micro system, you know, Xeon based um, CPUs and a bunch of SSDs and, and spinning rust. Um, and I would say, you know, fast forward around the 2010 plus time frame, uh, you know, when I had to, we had to kind of pay for our own power and cooling, I started to look at more small, smaller form factor systems. Um, and at the time, and this is predating the Intel Nooks, which are quite popular in terms of their small form factor systems, um, the Apple Mac Mini, um, surprisingly enough, that was not something that anyone thought would be a, a good platform to run ESXi. And it ended up being a really Perfect system um, because of its uh, size, its capabilities. Um, And I'd been using an Apple Mac Mini for for a number of years. And around 2015, 2016, you know, Intel had started producing Intel Nooks, but they weren't. capable in terms of, you know, CPU or compatibility of storage controls and network drivers, right? That ends up being a big, big deal for anybody that works with the VMware Home Labs. Um, And around 2016, this was also when we released, I think it was um, vSphere 6.2 or no, sorry, vSAN 6.2, vSphere 6.0. And so we just had our first release of vSAN. And the Intel Nook 6th generation was sort of like that ideal release that, you know, from Intel that sort of had most of the bug fixes um, in terms of hardware compatibility, had all the drivers, and that kind of started the the snowball effect of a lot of the community switching from from an Apple platform, especially as Apple was sort of getting out of the data center space. Um, and these the Mac minis were no longer as configurable and somewhat falling behind in terms of functionality. So you started to max out on the amount of memory you can get uh, and Intel started to kind of pick up and ride this train for a number of reasons, you know, for productivity, for signages, and then obviously for, for home lab and even edge use cases. And so I've been using a Mac Mini for a number of years. Um, and, you know, around 2017, 2018, I, you know, I needed something more powerful. And so again, I went from build it yourself to start to use these things or that just commodity available off the shelf, just add CPU and um, storage and memory. Uh, and, and more recently, you know, I use a combination of Mac Minis as well as a Supermicro E 8 D. This is a pretty popular platform amongst many home labbers, and uh, but the funny thing is that this platform is almost like a decade old now. In fact, when I upgrade um, to the latest releases of ESXi, you know, I keep getting that warning that says, "Hey, the CPU is no longer supported, no longer supported." So you have to add those um, override flags. And I assume at some point in time. You know, more than likely, the, the the hardware will probably still be running, but uh, probably won't be able to run future versions of ESXi in the future.
2: So did you update or upgrade the network as well throughout those years?
1: Yeah, they kind of upgrade sort of inherently just by the selection of the platform. Um, I would say the early days, you know, had pretty good connectivity from a, from these Supermicro, you know, full 1U, 2U chassis on the HCL. Um, as we kind of transition into these smaller form factors, you know, I did lose some connectivity initially because these Intel Nooks initially um, came with only a single network adapter. We didn't have the USB fling at that time and there really wasn't any extensibility. So I lost some connectivity. Now, interestingly enough, just for myself, I don't do a lot of networking. Uh, while I understand networking, I understand NSX, um, I'm not someone who totally love to dive into networking. I'm sure, you know, folks that, that love networking, they love it. And for folks that don't get it and <laughs> they fall in another camp, I typically fall in the other camp. Um, and it was only in recent, I would say maybe six, eight years, we started to get more platforms that all of a sudden you had more networking. To give you an example, the e, the Supermicro system, uh, you know, has four built-in uh, Ethernet adapters on top of the IPMI. So I can remotely manage the system, which was not possible with like a with an Intel Nook. But these systems also came with uh, both gigabit networking as well as 10 gigabit. And you have both SFP plus as well as copper. And as you look at more modern systems, you now have even up to 25 gigabit networking, which is really great for anybody that wants to do vSAN ESA or vSAN Max. And so um, you automatically had more capabilities as you look started to look at some of these more modern systems.
0: Now, one thing that I... Um, I- Took as a key takeaway from both your sessions in uh, Barcelona as well as Explore, when talking about your own home lab, is um, that um, it's the the best investment you can have in yourself, right? That was that was the key takeaway. So looking at your own home lab, so how are you currently using it? How have be, how have you been using it uh, in the past, and what do you get out of it?
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great key point. Like while we like to talk about this home lab, oftentimes we think of this like physical thing that that you're putting in a certain amount of investment in. Um, you know, the way I've looked at it the past several years is that it's not the thing that you're buying, right? It's really how much what are you investing yourself in, just like in typical financial investments, right? What you put in is what you get out. Um, and for myself personally, I've always had access to a, a home lab or a or I've built a home lab or I've used a home lab. And for me personally, it's helped me in my career progression. Part of it is not just understanding the technology, but it also helps me in my day-to-day job. You know, Early on, it was um, managing the, the, the VMware environment as an admin. So I was responsible for um, taking in new releases of our ESXi hypervisor, vCenter server appliance, going through the testing. Is it compatible with all the different solutions that we use internally with an organization? And then how do we incorporate that uh, from an automation standpoint? You know, And so how do you deploy this at scale, not only upgrades, but taking advantage of new capabilities? And so all of that was all done in a home lab, right? So when VMware um, used to have these betas that we would partake in, I would download the software bits, go take a look at what's new, go take a look at the different configuration option, what features were we leveraging, and immediately start to think about how do I automate this? How do I incorporate this into our existing infrastructure and automation processes? Um, And so I wouldn't do this in production systems. I wouldn't do it on physical hardware. As we know, a reboot of a physical server, especially in 2023, can potentially be anywhere from minutes to potentially hours, right? If you look at just the amount of memory that the system needs to kind of walk through. Um, And so to be able to test, you know, upgrades, to be able to test, um, you know, um, installations of ESXi through a scripted mechanism, um, nested virtualization, right? Or just the ability to have it in a lab environment is really critical. And then obviously learning about new technologies, you know, at one point we introduced vSAN, NSX, vSortanzu, Kubernetes, and now private AI, All of these different technologies over the years, I've been able to learn about, explore by using a home lab, right? And get comfortable. And you can imagine for your listeners, you know, whatever topic that you're interested in, you know, for example, if you're just trying to break into Kubernetes, understand what's happening in the cloud native space, what better way to try that in your home lab so that you can understand the technology, you understand how to install it, so that when you go into work, you have all those concepts in your mind, you already know how the product works. And you can apply that for your day-to-day, right? So it's not just helping yourself from a career progression standpoint, especially building new skill sets like automation. Um, you know, I do a lot of automation with our APIs. And again, you don't need to worry about accidentally breaking something, right? And, and I have different techniques on how you can easily rebuild your environment, including using nested virtualization. Um, but you can also take these learnings and apply that to your day-to-day job. Um, and again, excelling from that standpoint.
0: Now, one thing you already briefly uh, mentioned was private AI, uh, which is honestly it's it's part of wh- how I feel it like t- tomorrow's workloads. So it's it's uh, a lot has been talked about it already, and we saw some awesome demos uh, uh, during Explore as well. But you have been blogging in 2023 a lot, or oh, a couple of times about private AI as well. So I, I consider that to be kind of like a tomorrow's workload. So how do you ensure your lab is capable of running those workloads?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's uh, definitely top of mind for for a lot of folks. And while there's definitely a lot of buzz in the market about it, you know, there is a lot of um, potential. And kind of what you're seeing today in the industry, um, as well as VMware and everybody else, is that everybody's just experimenting, right? And so um, I... I took this upon myself to find a way to kind of explore and kind of take a look at, you know, how how this might be applicable or interesting to me. And so after VMware US, um, you know, I thought about, I was like, well, I'm not a data scientist. I'm sure most of our listeners are not, right? And sort of like, how, how, does, how does this become applicable to me? And I just thought about one very basic use case um, where, you know, I have a blog, I write a lot. And over the years, you sometimes just end up forgetting what you've written or if you want to quickly reference something, um, you know, doing a typical online search may not always be efficient, and sometimes they may not even give you the results you're looking for. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could sort of have, you know, quote-unquote my own private AI where I can take all the blog posts that I've written and be able to kind of interact with it, you know, kind of like a chat GPT, um, but just for myself, right, to be able to help answer some questions. I thought it was a pretty basic thing, but you can imagine, you know, replacing blogs with, like, PDF file, Excel spreadsheet, Power CLI scripts, right? pretty, pretty limitless in terms of the, the opportunities. Um, and I was able to put together a little setup with, with the lab that I had access to um, with an NVIDIA GPU, because you kind of need to have some sort of graphics capabilities. And, and if we're talking about sort of, you know, fast AI, ML inferencing, you know, NVIDIA is certainly the, one of the top leaders in this space. Um, and I was able to basically, you know, talk to my documents and and I kind of removed the need for this kind of hallucination that you hear about all the time when you use something like ChatGPT, where you're starting to make things up. Um, and I thought this was a really neat use case, um, that didn't really take a whole lot of capabilities, um, and even though I mentioned that you needed a GPU, and obviously that's a very difficult commodity these days to, to actually acquire, um, the project that I was using is actually can also run on different types of uh, computing processing, including a laptop. And it was actually speaking with Frank, um, you know, right after VMware Explorer, and I was like, "Hey, I did this," and he's like what you're doing is kind of what a lot of people in the industry is doing right now using something called rag. Um, And it kind of blew my mind because it was sort of like, well, this is sort of my own little use case. And he's like, you're just kind of kicking the tires. You're kind of doing what everybody's doing. Um, And again, it's, for me, it's sort of, I don't, Jump onto tech just because it's everybody's talking about. It. I really want to find a particular use case behind it, which I thought was 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 interesting for me. And and hopefully, you know, listeners will kind of take that as a motivation to maybe explore and take a look at, you know, how might this be applicable not just for your day to day role, um, but maybe what you might be doing within your organization.
0: Well, I think what one thing that's really interesting about what you just said is that there is a misconception that you need like data center grade GPUs and DPU's and extremely fast CPUs to uh, to run such a workload in a home lab. But I think you proved that it could be done in an actual home lab. So what kind of hardware are you actually using to run those workloads?
1: Yeah, so it, it kind of varies. And I think this is actually quite interesting. If you look at sort of, you know, typically what you see in the industry is like you have new hardware that gets introduced. Um, there's a lot of innovation happening there. And then software comes along and we have net new innovation that comes on top. Here, we're sort of seeing kind of somewhat the reverse. It's the lack of hardware or the lack or the accessibility of hardware that we're actually seeing all these interesting innovations kind of come about. You know, when I initially explored this particular project, um, and I'll give you a a nice story afterwards uh, on sort of what I did, you know, sort of the 2.0 version, that became the live demo for VMware Explorer um, since the session actually was not recorded. um, I used a, a sort of, you know, NVIDIA RTX 5500 GPU. This came with a pretty nice kit. It's this Lenovo P3 Ultra. So for anybody that's looking for a, a powerful kit that has, you know, more than your typical 64 gig, 96 gigs of memory, it's got 120 gigs of memory. So lots of memory to, to use on the system. Um, supports all the basic things you would expect. vSAN, vSphere, vSphere, Tanzu. But it also has this um, NVIDIA GPU that you can actually add on to it. So that's where I initially started. Um, so you definitely don't need Data center grade hardware. If you've got it, fantastic. Um, but again, it's really difficult. But you can get started with any typical, um, you know, consumer NVIDIA graphics card. And and the reason for that is that a lot of the projects that you see today that that's getting accelerated is, is basically using um, the CUDA framework, right? Uh, and that's basically doing the 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 the. the um, the processing power. And so any type of GPU now, obviously you want to get a, a, a GPU that has more graphics memory. Um, this particular, uh, RTX 5,500, I think has 16 gigs of memory. So, so that's kind of where it started, but you can certainly use other types of devices. Um, and, what what we're kind of seeing right now in the industry is that because of this lack of hardware and even consumer-grade GPUs, it's still very difficult to purchase. You know, what the developers have done, which is really fascinating, is that they found ways to take these workloads and, and and do various types of optimizations and techniques. You know, you may have heard of a term called quantitization, where you're now taking these models that typically require a bunch of, mem- you know, GPU memory, and they're able to optimize it to run on, smaller amounts of memory for GPUs that may not have all that processing capabilities. We're also seeing folks um, use different language techniques like llama CPP, which initially was focusing on sort of optimizing C++ code and using LangChain and all these different frameworks and running it on a CPU. And you'll start to see some you know, hybrid scenarios, you know, Intel just announced, uh, you know, their Sapphire Rapids now have AI acceleration built into the processor. So now you can take an, you know, certain types of inferencing workloads unmodified and run that natively on an Intel platform. And some of that, you know, processing for the matrix, uh, you know, computation can be offloaded to a CPU versus a GPU. Right. Um, And it's not just GPUs and and, uh, it's not just CPUs and GPUs, we're also seeing a, a lot of interest in, in the world of TPUs. And so Google has this uh, device called a Google Corel Edge TPU. In fact, I actually learned this from talking to our good friend, Alan Renouf. Um, and this has been happening at the edge for quite some time now. And in fact, this TPU is extremely popular during the pandemic. I think it just completely sold out. I think you know the supply chain has slowly kind of come back into the market. And what's really neat about these TPUs is that they're really, really good at vision and inferencing. And I'll give you a great story, you know, related to ESXi. Um, A lot of customers wanted to get these USB TPUs. They're really inexpensive. But one of the challenges that we had was that it didn't work out of the box with ESXi. And this was something that Alan was kind of sharing too, because he There are a number of use cases for this, obviously for vision. So if you think about a factory store or an industrial setting, you wanna be able to see your inventory and automatically process backlogs or be able to see if there's theft happening. Um, But it's also used in the consumer world, using something like Frygate for security. Um, And it uses some sort of AI and models to basically detect if it's seeing certain types of, you know, objects and be able to say, hey, that's a car, that's a human. This is Alan, this is Frank. And what's really cool was that once we were able to figure out how to get this working with ESXi, I actually had a user reach out to me and said, hey, I'm using an Intel Nook. Now, while this uh, FryGate application can work on a CPU, if you ran basic inferencing, it would take away, you know, it would eat up quite a bit of CPU capabilities. By now being able to use this TPU on with ESXi, they saw a 60% drop in CPU consumption. So now you can see the benefit of offloading certain types of processing. And so you have the inferencing capability that's getting offloaded to the TPU. These Intel NUCs are quite powerful. So it's also got an integrated graphics. And so the video decoding from the Frygate can also be offloaded to this device. And then now you have additional capacity to run workloads. And these are using different sensors and, and video cameras. And you might say, well, this is great for like security systems um, or, you know, just kind of check it on my pet, But When Alan was sharing the story, he was like, this type of a use case and this stack of software is the exact same software stack that you see at many edge um, deployments today. And this is literally what they're doing. And so these iGPUs on these small Intel Nooks have gotten extremely powerful in terms of what they can process, that in some cases, these iGPUs are actually more capable than maybe like a discrete GPU that you might purchase. Uh, And I was speaking with another individual at at Explore where they had shared that we have customers doing this today where the inferencing on these IGPUs uh, are not only um, comparable from a price perspective, um, but it's actually faster in some cases. And again, this is being deployed right now in the field um, from a lot of customers, even before this whole AI ML train kind of came about. And so point here is that there are so many different types of hardware options out there. And I think because of this lack of general accessibility of this you know, high-end GPUs, we're now seeing the industry go through a transformation um, and all these new innovations are kind of happening, you know, from hardware all the way up to our software stack.
0: Now, you mentioned inferencing a couple of times and um, I I read in one of your blog articles that you also, um, you used a model for your chatbot. You already used a pre-trained model. Uh, What was the primary reason for choosing a pre-trained model instead of training that model on the hardware itself and you know a follow-up question would be are is the training of a model also something you could do in a home lab or is that going to be challenging when it comes to the well the hardware you have in in a home lab
1: yeah no great great question um i mean first and foremost i mean i'm just kind of getting started right and so if somebody's done the work for me i want to get that benefit and the other thing too is i don't have a couple billion dollars lying around and, and a couple thousand GPUs. And that's typically what's required to do some of these large scale training, right? And so the, you know, probably the misconception, I think Frank even recently blogged about this was that while you can definitely, there's a lot of talk about these trainings, thousands of GPUs, there's only going to be so many companies doing that, right? Um, but one of the benefits, especially with something like RAG is you're able to take these models um, that are highly generic, provide context you know, accurate or private data within your organization, and get really fantastic outcomes, right? Especially when you want to reduce the scope of data that it's looking at, and ultimately that's what I did with this particular um, project and exploration. Um, you know, I, I took my blogs, right, and basically took a seven billion model parameter, um, you know, from Hugging Face and just downloaded it. I didn't have to do anything more than that. I didn't have to understand how they trained it. And and the cool thing about something like this is that, you know, if I found that the results were not what I was looking for, maybe it was less accurate. And I had more more resources like GPU resources, I can download a different model and try it out. Right. So it's almost like you going on the app store and trying out which apps, you know, which app works well for you um, and getting that benefit. You can certainly train it yourself if you really want to have a dedicated set, but I would say there's so many models out there today that you know as consumers, you don't really need to spend that resources and you get this benefit that they've trained it on thousands, thousands of these very, very expensive GPUs. And right now, you know, on average, it's anywhere in the mil- you know tens of millions, to you know, low billions, right, in terms of what the cost to, to, to do something like that. Um, and then from there, you can start to explore and kind of take a look at like, hey, do you want to fine tune that, right? So you can take that model, apply some techniques to further fine tune that, and then you would get a revised model that is specific to your needs. So a good example of this is that, you know, VMware has something, uh, we took something from, I think it was like StarCoder um, that was trained on, you know, thousands of different scripting languages. It was originally developed based on off of Python. So it knew Python really, really well. And what we want to do for our engineering team was to say, here are all the VMware coding standards and there are a number of different languages that we use to, you know, to code our products. You know, typically C, C plus plus, and we wanted to take this proprietary of like how do we code the standards, the different libraries, and take a generic model that really understood all the different, you know, um, programming techniques and best practices. But we wanted to really just zoom that into what we were doing within VMware engineering. And so we took that model and we fine tuned that. And then now you're able to use basically comments, right? And this is really great for developers because we all know that, you know, nobody likes writing documentation. And the way um, that this um, that this new uh, safe coder um, model works is that you use comments. And so you're sort of applying best practices already. You're commenting on the code and it starts to pull down standards of like, hey, these are templates, these are libraries. Um, and so you can use pre-trained models, and further optimize for your use case. And again, you're getting the benefit of what's already been done in the industry and not necessarily starting from scratch. And in many cases, it really doesn't make sense to start from scratch.
2: So you mentioned your own uh, application with your own content uh, scraped from your website. You also mentioned retrieval, augmented generation, RAG. So what did you else do in order to get that to work, did you use a full CI CD pipeline? Did you use Kubernetes? Did you set up a Docker repo? What did you do to get started?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good good question. And I would say, like, from a skill set standpoint, a lot of the things that you're finding in this space really build on prior generations of technologies and concepts. You know, especially in this AI ML space, a lot of Python is used. And so being comfortable with looking at, you know, Python code, but not only that, but being comfortable with things like Docker, containers, Kubernetes, because these are typically the form factors that these applications are running in. And so when we had talked about, you know, Visor with Tanzu, why Kubernetes, you know, several years back, and you know, it feels almost like a lifetime now. Um, but, you know, at one point, you know, Kubernetes was this groundbreaking thing of like, well, how do I schedule this net new type of container-based workload? And admins were like, well, this is really a developer thing. And it really isn't, right? It's just a different form factor to run our application. And today, this ML, AI, ML world, you know, these are the, these are the types of applications that are being run. Um, and what I found was that a lot of the things that I had learned about and kind of built up that skill set was very, very relevant. And so if you're just getting started um, and you're still wondering like, hey, is it worthwhile to learn about Docker Kubernetes? Um, The answer is absolutely yes. And depending on the types of projects, you know, the one that I was using, um, it's a fantastic open source project called H2O GPT. You can run it, uh, you know, in a typical VM form factor. Um, You can further optimize it by using something like a Docker container. The benefit there is that instead of having to install a VM, install the dependencies. And I think that was something that was a big eye-opening for me was that once you kind of get into this world, and I wouldn't even say I'm even like a novice by any means, right? I'm just kind of poking around. You know, there's dependencies from, you know, the drivers that you might need from NVIDIA, the different frameworks, the different runtimes, whether it's PyTorch, CUDA. And again, there's lots of interesting innovations happening in that space, but it also means that there's complexity. How do you deliver that stack in the in? Um, and you can also do things with Kubernetes, right? And so depending on the projects or the types of technologies that you're interested in, it may only be available in one of these form factors. And so if you really want to get a good understanding uh, of what this is, even if you're just experimenting, um, you know, being able to You know, build up on the skill set that you might have been using, things like Docker, container, things like CI, CD, Flux, all of these things are interconnected, right? These are all different technologies to be able to run workloads, you know, within the data center. Um, And so all of these skill sets is very, very valuable and it all kind of comes together. And I think that was really the, the really cool part to see, not only from purely from an infrastructure point of view, but what are all the application components that then eventually gets to a particular application and you kind of see the experience. And I think that was really cool to see that full end to end. And I think that's not something that all admins necessarily have seen, right? We typically kind of stay within the infrastructure realm, but to really appreciate and understand what are the requirements from the business, you know, what's moving the needle for your organization, you really have to kind of, kind of go up the stack. Uh, And I think that also, introduces a lot of learnings and opportunities for you uh, as an individual, right, from a career standpoint.
2: Yeah, you mentioned an uh, eye-opener. One of the eye-openers for me was that the majority of tools used by data scientists are actually container-based, interactive container-based, not necessarily applicable for a Kubernetes environment, but just a virtual machine with a a runtime, can be Docker or or Podman, and then just start it, and then toy around if you look at most the ngc the nvidia gpu cloud uh, containers they're interactive docker containers and to me that that made it so much more low entry i i know how to install docker i know how to install uh, or run a docker uh, container instead of just figuring out how to write that yaml file how to figure out to turn it into a service and all of these things so don't shy away from this uh, is my advice just just go and download and run it in docker the moment you're going to touch kubernetes is when you actually make it into a production uh, application where you want to use particular services particular schedulers and all of these things now you also mentioned complexity and i i don't want to know if i can actually ask this question because we had a lot of interesting conversations with you using a lot of different words that i haven't heard from your mouth but um, coming out of your mouth but what was one of your biggest challenge uh what did you underestimate and was a little bit more difficult than you originally expected it to be
1: yeah 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 there's a there's definitely a few few words that we probably shouldn't be repeating on this podcast <laughs> um yeah, this is a kid safe show right pg-13 um you know it, it really was that that runtime stack like You know, being infrastructure folks, we know that infrastructure can certainly be very complex. You know, VMware has been in this space for over two decades to simplify and abstract. I think the thing that I hadn't realized was that once you go above the infrastructure, you know, now we're talking about within the guest OS or within a Docker container, that application stack and that runtime from the point that you can kind of go to a UI and, you know, chat with the bot, you know, between that layer and the bits and pieces that go to your storage and your network and your compute, that is a humongous amount of complexity right now. And I, I think it, it's not um, well understood because I think the folks working in this space, like I said, it's typically your data scientists. They are not programmers. They're not developers, right? Their skill set is really understanding models, finding, tuning. And so we're getting into a space where we're, we're seeing the complexity of software, in all shapes and forms, whether it's the device drivers that can interact with it from an infrastructure point of view and the various runtimes and the frameworks that makes this application work. It might look like it's working, but you realize that when you go through maybe interaction, like asking like a chat GPT-like experience, you realize like things are slowing down and you have no freaking clue why. And it was really only doing some experimentation and working in the lab with yourself, Frank and others you know, did we sort of identify, it's like, wow, there's compatibility between drivers drivers that are shipped from a particular vendor. They're these exact same drivers, at least we thought, being shipped inbox in the operating system. And then drivers that are provisioned through different um, tooling and frameworks like PIP, Conda. And all of a sudden you have this, you know, M by N matrices of, of complexity that isn't really documented anywhere. And I think you can't really appreciate what we're saying until you go through an installation. And if you look at a lot of the open source projects, it's sort of like, hey, you know, set up Conda, which gives you an easy way to set a Python environment, go install a couple of these packages. And oftentimes they are not um, provisioned with a specific version of the software. And, it should work, and what we found, or at least what I found, is that that's not always the case, and you have incompatibilities uh, between drivers that have to go on the SXI host, and those drivers matter when you start to run the CUDA runtime. Um, even something as simple as like PyTorch, um, there are optimization, ver- there's optimized versions of it that is particularly designed for say like an Intel CPU versus you know, an NVIDIA GPU or maybe like a generic version. And there's really no easy way to kind of test that, what you've got installed. And so I found myself a lot of just trial and error trying to get something installed. And and I think that that amount of complexity, you know, I think is also an opportunity for the industry to figure out, like, how do we simplify this, right, for the consumer? Now the consumer is no longer a developer, It's this individual called the data scientist. They may have some understanding of infrastructure, most likely not as much as they would like. And they probably don't want to spend time in infrastructure. They also don't want to be a developer either. And so there's this interesting space of like, how do we make this easier for these consumers so that they can come in, have the environment set up for them, So that they can start adding value to the organization, right? So I think the same problem statement has always existed, right? It's just that this is a new app, a new consumer, but at the end of the day, we're providing infrastructure as an administrator. How do we architect, develop this platform that makes it very easy for these folks to come in? And then how do you manage these resources across your AI, ML workloads along with your traditional and maybe other cloud native apps, right? Because I I think from a resource management standpoint, there are so many things that we can do better right? Now you have to keep track of like, well, here's the CPU compute, you know, that is more, you know, compute sensitive. Here's my storage sensitive workloads. And oh, here's some graphics workloads, some of this AI ML, I need to understand where these GPUs are located at. And how do I sign them, I want to make sure that they're used in a way that's very efficient, because they are a very costly um, piece of resource. And so again, all from what I see, there's a lot of challenges, but there's also a lot of opportunities in front of us, you know, both from VMware, um, but also from the the, the broader um, industry to really make this simple. But I think these are some of the things that was really eye opening to me because I was like, hey, how hard could it be to stand up a, a ML stack? And it was like, wow. It can be really, really difficult, especially um, if you don't have a well-defined stack, and you're kind of pulling, you know, from the best of breed. And I think we'll start to see some consolidation in some of these spaces. Yeah,
0: I, I presented a session once called um, uh, "Mastering Voodoo," um, and that was pre-NVIDIA NGC era, so before NVIDIA launched the um, um, their GPU cloud, uh, where you can basically pull all sorts of frameworks all. Tied into Docker images, Um, yeah. You have actually had to build it yourself, and I I still remember those days. And like what you just mentioned, it, it, yeah. I, oh man, that was that was challenging. But have you also played around with the uh, the NGC platform of Nvidia?
1: I've done a little bit of stuff with it. You know, I started to get started to take a look at it. But I'm glad that you actually mentioned NGC. So while it's definitely been easier to get into that infrastructure in the ecosystem. I still think that there's a huge challenge in front of us. I'm glad you mentioned like containers. That was the other eye opening thing. You know, maybe Frank already knew this because he's been working on this for some time. When I was downloading some of these containers, forget the model. So we already knew that these models are anywhere from the 60 to 100 gigabytes. All right. So these are gigantic <laughs> models. So when I say, hey, go just try it out, it also means that, you know what, your organization, you're probably using quite a bit of bandwidth and storage just to play with these models. And just imagine different departments all experimenting how much redundant um, you know, models that you're dialing over and over and over again. But that's just the models, right? Hopefully, you know, you're know, you not dialing as much, but the infrastructure is just as bad. If you look at some of these Docker containers, we say that Kubernetes is still supposed to be nice and small. It should boot up very, very quickly. You know, When I was booting up one of these container images for the inferencing, it sat there for a while. Uh, and at first I thought I broke something. I pinged Frank and I was like, Hey man, I think something's going on. And he's like, no, 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 J- just give it some time. And then what, and when I started to do the kubectl logs, I was like, Oh, it's still pulling the container. i was like, "What? what do you mean? It's pulling the container, this container. And I was just using a basic, basic container. It was 60 gigabytes. <laughs> And you multiply this out by different frameworks, right? And so I think that was the other big opening is that the amount of storage you're going to need and the amount of connectivity to transfer the data, whether you're ingesting documents into like an embedding um, to be able to get all this data around in these models, you have now a humongous data problem. And I think that is also one of the um, big announcements at VMware Explorer was that we've been creating these abstractions on compute networking storage, right? And then now we're all of a sudden, to it look like VMware kind of shift gears a little bit going to data services. And and that has always been by design because once we've had this foundational storage platform, which is vSAN and with the recent re-architecture with ESA, we're now able to deliver data services because when you look at AI and ML, at the end of the day, it's a data management problem. And so it's not just being able to manage these different data sources, these databases, but it's just the amount of storage you need. And that was um, something that I was not expecting as an admin. I was like, wow, I need more storage than ever.
2: Yeah, data is going to be the the main challenge. So if you have a foundation model at one point, you're okay. But the reality is it's all about the amount of data and even more the quality of data and figuring out where to find that high quality data. That is going to be the challenge amongst the the people that are working with Gen AI workloads within an organization. So one thing that was really cool is when you started to work on it and um, I started to talk about the deep learning image within the organization, people went like, but why are we focusing on this? It's just merely a virtual machine with some drivers and with some libraries installed. And I'm like, William Lamb is cussing me out every single day. So how 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 difficult do you think it is? It is extremely difficult when you have William an angry William Lamb on on your line every single day. So what about a casual VI admin? They're not going to f- fix this and they don't want to spend the time fixing this. We need to be able to fix it for the the our customers, right?
1: Yeah, and, and so use cases, right, too. So it's not just one particular user with these requirements. You have different versions of the framework different application requirements, right? And so you're absolutely right. Um, and I think being able to deliver these images where you can have provenance, right? When you start to think about, here's the model that I use, here's the framework, and here's the data set. How do I prove this from a security and compliance standpoint? So yeah, absolutely agree. And I think uh, that's something that we can definitely do more in our space to really make it easier for for admins.
2: Yeah, and the explainability is one thing that what you mentioned is really important. And that's one of the things that we're also figuring out hey, how can we store those models and store those, uh, maybe those NGC containers or somebody else or some other containers in a repo, in a proxy repo that's really close by the actual compute infrastructure so we don't have to go and download each and every time when we start a new script. And that was one of my learnings is that when you have a script that actually pulls a model or pulls a, a NGC container and it fails, it doesn't check whether that NGC container has already been downloaded. It just restart uh, and download it again. And so I'm basically going through the organization pull request limit. And so I'm doing a denial of service on all the other data science-focused people because my script is failing constantly. And that's another thing that we want to see. Okay, how can we not necessarily uh, basically burn through the bandwidth but also make it more that it allows you to actually start up faster and have a, a repo that you can do versioning on and all of the other things right So with that in mind, with all the complexity and the complaining about complexity uh, <laughs> out of the way, do you actually think that that somebody should try and run a chatbot in a uh, home lab?
1: you know I, I think definitely the answer is yes um, it may not have to be a chatbot you know like I said, you know, I've been kind of interested in these LLMs and, and even your session, Frank, I uh, highly recommend if you if you weren't able to attend to check out the recordings to give you just foundational information. But I found that that was just how I learned personally at best. And, and and when I look back in all the years of all the different types of technologies and and innovations that have been released both by VMware and by the industry, it's, like, it's really just getting hands-on, right? And so maybe if chatbot is not the thing that you're interested in, um, maybe you're interested in some of this... um coding assistance. We're seeing a lot of these kind of co-pilots happening in GitHub, VS Code. There's even a, a model out there for enhancing your PowerShell script. So you can imagine, you know, taking that your, your script content, and maybe you're looking for a particular snippet of code rather than sifting through all those different snippets, you can actually interact with and say, hey, given all the scripts that you've written, or maybe your organization has written, or maybe something that you might have extracted from the internet, how do you quickly get to an answer? And so I do believe that, you know, these AI ML models can really help from a productivity standpoint. And typically if you look at your day-to-day, part of it is pulling your hair out, cursing Frank out because of the infrastructure is broken. But the other part of your day most likely is that you're probably looking for information, right? Whether you're looking for information in Slack, in email or creating reports. And so now you can think about using this really powerful model that you didn't have to do any work on. Download the model, give it your private data, right? And interrogate that with something, right? You might want to interrogate your infrastructure and say, hey, I need to build out a report to say which of these workloads has a particular vulnerability because I just found out about the CVE. And instead of you having to write all of that code up front each and every single time, it just having some access to your infrastructure, you're able to get some really powerful outcomes, right? And again, we're just scratching the surface. And so again, we're doing here at VMware, what the industry is doing, we're all just experimenting. And so if nothing more, um, to get yourself exposed, um, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. You know, I talk about this a lot, especially with automation, is that just dedicate some time. At the end of the day, this is all about investing in yourself, right? And and so if you don't want to excel in your career, you don't want to grow yourself, hey, you can kind of walk away. But I think almost every listener of yours probably wants to learn something. And if it's not about AI, ML, you might still learn a little bit about the infrastructure, whether it's Docker, whether it's Kubernetes, and it can be done in a, a very fun way. And so I think folks should definitely give this a try. It really is not just all this buzz that, that's happening in the industry. There's real applicability and real benefits that comes from it. And I think only until we start to explore will we actually find out um, what are the possibilities and limits.
2: Yeah, I think those are true words. And especially when you think and relate back to the the beginning of, of virtualization. For me, when I started virtualization, it was not necessarily that I was focused on that new technology, but more or less what, uh, what other technologies that I had to learn. I, was, I used to be an exchange administrator, and so I looked at the application and figured out a way how to run it on, on a Windows server. But when ESX came along, I was like, holy, I need to th- look at servers. I need to think about networking. I need to think about storage, and I need to learn all of this while Learning a Unix shell type, and I believe the AI world is pretty much doing the same again, but then at a higher level. Now we need to think about the Kubernetes layer. Now we need to think about containers. Now we need to think about how to expose that application, how to run data end to end, and while still running it on the hypervisor. So there's this new way of 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 connecting newer types of infrastructure and newer types of application pipelines that makes it so interesting to 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 learn and so when you think about that and people think i want to do that that as well do you have some advice on people on what to build to have a decent ai home lab
1: yeah i think on top of all the things we've discussed you know there's just so much learning content available these days right youtube plural site um and the open source world like Man, if you just kind of poke your head in, it is getting updated on a regular basis. New projects are spinning up, optimizations. But I think from a hardware standpoint, you know, start to look at systems that have a GPU. Um, You know, Intel is doing some really interesting things these days. In fact, I just saw a paper uh, from the research team where they're able to use OpenVINO and some of the optimizations for, for the CPU instructions to actually shrink some of these models and actually run fairly efficiently even on a CPU. So again, I think we're going to see more and more of these innovation because of the lack of general um, access to GPUs. But I would say that, you know, if you really want to play with a lot of the open source projects, um, you know, NVIDIA is still sort of the dominant leader in that space. And so you have the ability to get an NVIDIA GPU Um data center grade would be most ideal, but I think we've kind of talked about that. You can certainly get away with using consumer systems. Um, And if some, if it's one of those things where you don't want to cut a shortcut on as much as possible is get as much GPU memory as you can, because that's going to be something that's going to be very difficult to, um, to upgrade in the future. Um, And, the demo that I talked about, what was neat about it was that I needed to build a demo that actually worked um, for my live environment because our lab was, was was not functioning at the time. And I was able to take this project and actually run this on my M1. So the nice thing about the Apple Silicon architecture is it's got this unified memory. And so system memory, graphics memory can all be shared. Um, and the particular laptop that I have, it has 64 gigs of memory, which is fantastic. But even putting that aside, this particular application Could run on my on my Apple laptop. In fact, I demoed it live, and it only used about eight gigs of memory. So while I have sixty four gigs of memory available to me um, to do all sorts of processing power, I found that I don't need that much memory to kind of get started with something as foundation. I was like, hey, here's you know, model them down from the internet. Here's my own private data. Let me just go kick the tires the investment I would say is not that high. And I'm sure most folks out there have, like has a Windows laptop or uh, a recent Mac that has some amount of GPU capabilities. And I think we're only going to see more and more of these hardware platforms come out either unified like an app architecture, or we're starting to see CPUs get augmented. And so I think it's a great investment if you're looking and, you know, Given that today might be Christmas, hopefully, you know, Santa dropped off a nice uh, NVIDIA A200 or something. Um, But if you don't have that, you know, definitely look at some of these platforms that have integrated graphics.
0: Yeah. And one, like if if there's an A2 in in your Christmas sock or underneath the uh, Christmas tree, one kit that really can help you um, kickstart your AI journey is the Jetson uh, platform. So I have a couple of Jets and Nanos laying around, but they have like CUDA core. So it's basically a Raspberry Pi on steroids. I don't think it's suitable to run ESXi yet. Um, don't know if that will happen in the future, but it is capable of running Ubuntu. Um, and you can basically, yeah, um, you can join the, um, the there's, a, a, oh, man, an online university at NVIDIA. Um, where you can do a couple of kickstart courses and, um, and use the Jetson to do stuff like computer vision or build a chatbot or something else. It's, re- it's really awesome.
2: We will add the, that NVIDIA university course at the, on the show links. But think, uh, talking about online resources, and, and I'm really curious about your 64 gig machine. Uh, William, did you uh, somewhere describe your hardware? And have you some tips on on where to look at for these online courses?
1: Uh, I've not. That's uh, one of those items that I need to still create a blog post on, um, especially for the laptop since that was fairly recent. Um, And it also works beyond just an an Apple M1, uh, but I'll find some time in my backlog (laughs) to to put up a blog article about that. So you should see something about that. And and also the the project that I was able to kind of put together in, in that short amount of time.
2: And the beauty is, now that the M3 is out, maybe somebody will dump an M1 on, on eBay that you can pick up for cheap and then, within air quotes, and then uh, get ready to, to start your journey.
1: Oh, that's a great point. I mean, second second generation is always fantastic, and these these systems are pretty darn powerful. So if you have the ability to get like a recent M2, M3, awesome. But I think an M1 would definitely kick it and kind of goes to show that even with something that has up to 64 gigs of memory you're not really using that much of it. So you can imagine you're be able to run like Fusion, other workloads, productivity, desktops, and then on the side, play with an AI ML application.
2: Yeah. Hey, so thanks, Williams, for this very interesting episode. Do you have any famous last words or anything you want to plug?
1: Fix your lab, Frank, so I can start doing some cool things. <laughs> <with you.
0: laughs> and that's it. We've reached the end of another episode of the Unexplored Territory podcast. If I have to summarize today's episode, then my key takeaway would be that home labs continue to be awesome, that you don't need expensive GPUs to learn about AI, and that there's a ton of resources like William's blog to get started. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate the podcast where possible. If you have any feedback, send us a message on X on unexploredpod.com. Last but not least, I would like to thank William for a fantastic episode and wish everyone happy holidays. we love to hear you and see you back in 2024.